Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much that we have this privilege to gather together this morning to study your word, the freedom in this nation to gather together to clearly teach the word and proclaim the gospel of our salvation by grace through faith in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, we thank you for your word that gives us everything we need to know about every issue in life, your word that is sufficient because it is a product of your grace that is sufficient, which is exemplified in our salvation, which is sufficient. Father, we thank you for this nation in which we live. We pray that you would continue to protect us, to give wisdom to our leaders, grant security to this country. We pray for those who are serving even now in Afghanistan, in Iraq, other parts of the world. We pray that you'd watch over them, keep them safe. Pray for those who are listening to this ministry, those who are part of this ministry, that you would uh, give them the strength of their convictions. May they be a good witness and testimony where they are. Father, we pray for us that we might not take lightly the privilege we have to study your word, that we might not take lightly the truth that we are learning, but that we might realize that you have provided this for us, that we might advance, that we might grow, that we might reach spiritual maturity and that we might be a blessing to those around us. Father, we pray that you challenge us with the things that we learned today and that we would be responsive to that challenge. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Before we get into our study of 1 Corinthians 15 this morning, I want to bring you up to date on a couple of things that are going on around here and call for some of you to perhaps get a little more involved in a few things. This is coming at a little bit of a challenge to the congregation right now because we, uh, we're losing a couple of people who are moving away who have been plugged into some key positions, teaching and doing some other things related to uh, prep school. And so we, that's one reason Jim made the announcement earlier. We need a couple of uh, people to step up to the plate now and take on some responsibilities in prep school. But at the same time, as you've all noticed and we've pointed out here and there, we're expanding the media ministry, 
And a number of things have been going on, and we've been working on the video, trying to get this DVD production going for approximately six months now. And with one technical problem and another, it hasn't gone very smoothly. But it's almost there if we could just get the equipment to work. And, of course, we don't need volunteers to work on that. We've got uh, Jim and Bryce, and they do a fantastic job there. But the I don't know how much some of you know about what goes on with the media ministry, but last year we separated Dean Bible Ministries officially, legally, from the church just to, for a number of reasons I don't need to go into this morning. But we did that, and we've got, uh, and that runs the website, and that is a benefit to the church in a lot of ways. But we need some help. The ministry is just exploding. We are getting between six and 7,000 visitors, not hits, because a hit can be any one page, but I mean visitors per month on the website. We're sending out, I don't know, in terms of cassettes, I don't know how many we're sending out now, uh, but it continues to increase. But it's not increasing as much as it was due to the fact that we're seeing so many people that used to be tapers, now they're downloaders. And we've got lots of people downloading, and, and we have no way of really tracking that other than the statistics on the server gives us some idea of how many people visit or how many computers visit the website uh, every every month. And that has, in the last year, that has almost tripled. So it's, we're having a tremendous outreach. But in order to continue this, we need some help. One thing we need is someone who could volunteer to work maybe five or ten hours a week for well, part-time pay for the ministry just to do some basic secretarial type of work. We need someone who can just check the mail regularly, do some deposits, do some basic things like that just to help out to free up uh, Bryce and Jim so that they can focus on the things that they do well and not on these little mundane matters. So we need someone there. We also need some people to help out in the sound booth and with video. And they'll be trained, and they don't need to understand all of the technical issues that are, that are creating the problems. They just need to know how to basically do the recording, when to turn things on, when to turn things off, how to do a few other things uh, that's a little more complicated with the video because you have to switch back and forth between between the, the two cameras. We'll, have, we'll ha- have a second camera up here plus a mixer that allows us to have a direct feed into the DVD from, from my laptop on the PowerPoint instead of trying to come off the screen. As you can see on Sunday morning, the screen gets a little washed out because of the light in here, even if we have the blinds closed. So there's some things there. So we need some folks, uh, men and women. Don't just think this is something that only the guys can do. I know some of you ladies have some technical skills and artistic ability that can come into play on on some of these things. But it's a great way to to serve the Lord and just to uh, be involved at one class a week. If we could get eight people uh, designated, six people who have a regular commitment to Sunday morning, first hour, second hour, Wednesday night, pick one, and then have a couple of people for backup because like a couple of weeks ago we had two or three deacons were all out of town. We hardly had enough to even do communion on Sunday morning. So when something like that hits, we need some backups, somebody who can step in and and, uh, fill the slot. 
So that's what we need. Where the tape ministry is expanding, the DVD ministry is developing. We have at least one satellite church. We have some other groups who have been uh, at least investigating the possibility of starting up a local church using DVDs. Right now we're just restricting the DVDs to a, a group that is, is starting a church somewhere around uh, eight or ten uh, individuals. Then they can start a church and, and they can use the DVDs in lieu of a pastor until they get to a point where they can call their, their own pastor. So there's a, there's a lot to this. We eventually will be able to provide DVDs just like we do CDs, but that's not going to happen anytime in the near future with the cost of DVD uh, duplication plus the heavy man hours involved in getting somebody else involved with that. It just takes a lot of time, a lot of work, a lot of, a lot of financing, but eventually I'm sure that we'll have the equipment to do that. And so the, the sooner we get started where we have a good quality uh, DVD, then uh, it's just going to be amazing what, what we can do. So the Lord's really provided. He's been extremely gracious. Six years ago when I came here, I never expected uh, anything like this. You know, just thought, well, this is nice. We're going to go to a nice, quiet, sleepy, out-of-the-way uh, rural village and have a good ministry. Never did I expect to travel half of what I travel or to have the tape ministry grow like it has grown and all of these other things take place. So the Lord's been extremely gracious, but we have, we have tapes that go into Africa. We're developing a huge uh, number of people in Africa, and uh, Jeff and Lori have just done a fantastic job putting all the tapes out and keeping up with that. By the way, Lori, I, uh, talk with me later. I found out that... Uh, we can how to we're working on how to get uh, information to Moses Onwabiko's organization. Moses is a missionary. He's from I don't really know where he's from in Africa, but he lives in and he's based out of uh, I'm not even sure the name of the town now, but it's down in Tennessee. And Moses is taking masters of a complete set of masters of all the tapes from here over to Africa. And then they're distributing over there. So we we need to shift all the African stuff to just send it to him, and then they'll do the distribution in Africa. But that's that's taking place uh, with the DVDs. People are put taking the down, downloading off the internet, creating their own MP3 CDs, and then passing those around. So it's we have no idea, no clue where. Uh, Preston City Bible Church is impacting the world, but our stuff is going uh, into Europe, it's going into Africa, Asia, uh, Australia, all over the U.S., and so we just need people who are willing to get involved and get committed to this ministry. I mean, it can't work without without your help, just like the local church can't work without your help. So there's a tremendous amount to do. Okay, let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're down to verse 35. 1 Corinthians 15, 35. Now, in the first part of this chapter, from verse 1 to 34, the focus has been on the reality of the resurrection. Can there, is there such a thing as resurrection? And this dealt with the, the whole question of physical bodily resurrection from the Greeks. And I've made the point again and again because we have to understand this 
uh, principle. We always have to remember this, the Bible must be interpreted in light of the time in which it was written. So we have to understand the historical context of the situation before we can properly interpret the passage and then see its application for us. Now, at some point, it's a little rugged at times for us to see some of the significance here because we live in a post-Christian world. And by post-Christian world, I mean that in Western civilization, Western Europe and North America, we had a period of three or four hundred years where this country was dominated by a Judeo-Christian frame of reference, a Judeo-Christian worldview. And so it is, even among unbelievers today still, there is some sense of resurrection. I don't know how many of you took the opportunity on Friday to watch the uh, funeral and the service for uh, President Reagan. One of the things that struck me as I watched that, because I didn't get to watch the first, uh, watch it live, at least the first part, and about 4.30 I just happened to be channel surfing and hit C-SPAN, and they were just beginning to rerun the whole service. So I sat there for six and a half hours and watched the entire thing. And most of us don't get exposed to a funeral for that long, but it really provides a an opportunity to reflect on a lot of things. And, of course, I had 1 Corinthians 15 running through my head as we've been teaching this on resurrection. And realize that that even those who uh, were unbelievers, those who were not necessarily Christians with a biblical frame of reference who spoke among some of those who, who uh, friends and family who made various comments, there was still a sense that there's an afterlife, that there's a resurrection, and that's part of our culture. So we don't come from a cultural background that questions the reality of resurrection, although there are, there are those who do. There are atheists, agnostics, various other uh, elements in our culture and people who don't believe in a physical bodily resurrection, uh, don't believe in an afterlife. But for the most part, most Americans, whether they're Christian or not, have some concept of resurrection and don't, have a, don't come to the idea of resurrection at least in a theoretical sense, with a, with, with a skepticism like the Greeks did. They just doubted it. And to get some background on this, I wanted to go to Acts 17. So just hold your place in 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to touch on two passages in Acts 17 which bring to focus this problem related to resurrection in the ancient, in the ancient world or at the time that the New Testament was written. Acts 17, the description of Paul's second missionary journey. And as he proceeded south down the uh, Greek peninsula, he came to Athens. And in verse 16, let's just pick up the context there. Paul was waiting for them, that is for uh, Silas and Timothy, and while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. And the Greek word for provoked there almost means he was incited. So he doesn't become angry, but, he, but he's, as he looks around, watches the culture, as he sees what's going on, he is, he is uh, motivated and moved to address what he, what he sees in relationship to the, to the idols and the religious practices there. A few years ago when I was in, I guess we went up to Worcester at the 
uh, museum up in Worcester, there was a, an exhibit from uh, the, where was, it, where, where was it from? It was from uh, uh, in, in Syria. Let me see, I forgot the name. Anyway, it was from the, this time period. It was from the late first century, actually, around the church, the church and, and it was in, from Antioch, and Antioch of Syria, and it was mosaics and floor mosaics and wall paintings from all the various public buildings and private homes. And in all of these, there were figures representing the gods, representing uh, Zeus and Hera and Hercules and all the different gods and titans and various figures in Greek mythology. This was everywhere you went. I've often thought that when, when Paul was in Corinth and uh, he, t- he taught at the, um, uh, taught at the school of Tyrannus that even on the walls of the school were pictures and, and mosaics of the, the various false gods of, of uh, Greece. Now, think about that. You know, there's so many people in our churches today that if you walk in and you see something out of order, you won't go back to that church. It's just they had a picture of Jesus, and I don't like that, or, or whatever it may be. There's something about the structure or the environment, and you decide, well, I don't, I don't like that kind of a building or or whatever it may be. And here Paul is holding Bible class for two years in, in a school, the school of Tyrannus, which was a philosophy school, which was just like one of our uni- secular universities, and there was all kinds of paganism represented on the walls. So uh, they lived in a world that was vastly different from the one in which we live. And as Paul was going through Athens and he saw all of these statues and he saw the temples and he saw the mosaics on the walls, he, his spirit was provoked. And that just means that his thinking was, was uh, aggravated enough to where he decided he wanted to address the issue. And so he went into the synagogue, verse 17, therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happen to be there. So he doesn't just go into the synagogue. He goes out into the marketplace, goes down to ShopRite or Stop and Shop or BJ's and sits around Starbucks. And people would come in and he would just strike up a conversation and begin to witness to people. This is what's going on in the marketplace daily with those who happen to be there. Then, as a result of this, people began to talk about this strange Jewish fellow down in the marketplace who's always talking about this God and this Savior who was raised from the dead. Now, this was a challenge, and certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, what does this babbler want to say? See, they just thought he was just another uh, somebody who came to Athens to talk about their own personal philosophy. Others said he seemed to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. So you see right there that from the start, the resurrection is a prominent feature of the content of his evangelism. So they took him aside and they brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. And of course, this is the doctrine of resurrection. They don't have a belief in a bodily resurrection. In fact, in Greek thought, as we've seen, the ideal is that you can just get rid of this trashy old body and go off into uh, the ideal and your, your soul 
is finally free and you can realize what everything you were you were meant to be by getting rid of this physical material limitation and they thought this was a strange doctrine for verse 20 for you are bringing some strange things to our ears therefore we want to know what these things mean now let's just skip down because i don't want to take take the time to go through and analyze all the details in the uh teaching of the Areopagus, but we get down to verses uh, 32 to 34, and we see their reaction to the resurrection. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, he had just, uh, in Paul's explanation, he had just made the point that Jesus Christ uh, had been raised from the dead, by that God had raised him from the dead. And in verse 32, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. So they they mocked him. They just rejected the whole idea, the whole notion. See, this is the embedded presupposition of Greek thought. Now, I have developed the subject of cosmic thinking a lot. Cosmic is from the Greek word cosmos, meaning worldly. And it doesn't mean worldly in the sense that a lot of uh, fundamentalist Christians want to take it, which has to do with certain kinds of practices. It has to do with thinking like the human viewpoint or secular culture around you, or maybe it's a religious culture around you. You can be a product of a religious culture like the Jews producing Pharisees and Sadducees, and you're a product of that culture. You're thinking in a worldly way. You can be very religious, and it's just worldliness. It's not biblical Christianity. There's only two worldviews, essentially. There's a Christian worldview, a biblical worldview, and a non-biblical worldview. There is divine viewpoint and there's human viewpoint. Now, human viewpoint has many different manifestations, but human viewpoint is tantamount to worldliness. It is thinking like the culture surrounding you. And we've all been, we are all the products of our culture, whether it's an Asian culture, whether it's a European culture, whether it's an American culture, Canadian culture, and then even within those national cultures, there are subcultures. And everybody is brought up within, with certain ideas that you're taught from your parents, you're picked up from teachers at school, from peers. And this, is, this is, becomes sort of the mental furniture that we all carry around with us. And part of your spiritual growth is to be able to identify those ideas and those concepts that are the product of the world, which you're very comfortable with. I mean, in many cases we think of them as common sense sometimes. This is just, it just, that's just common sense. But it's really not. It's, does it come out of the Scripture? So we have to look at those things. Well, in Greek culture, they just thought it was common sense to not believe in the resurrection. Nobody believed in physical bodily resurrection. That's absurd. And part of it was because they, they misunderstood the concept of what was being taught. And another part of it, of course, was that they just rejected it out of hand because the soul needed to be freed from the body. Now, for those who rejected it out of hand, Paul has addressed that issue in these first 34 verses in Acts 15. Now, there's another group that, I mean, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Now, there's another group that also rejected the idea of bodily resurrection, and that was the Sadducees. So there was clearly a segment of Jewish culture, religious Jewish culture, that rejected uh, the concept of resurrection. And we see this in Acts chapter 23, verses 6 to 8. This is when Paul is, 
Paul has gone to Jerusalem, and there he has been arrested because of his causing trouble among the Jews by preaching the gospel. And he's taken before the Sanhedrin in Acts uh, 23, verses 6 to 8. And as he is on trial before the Sanhedrin, Paul very craftily gets them in a dispute. He's on trial, and he's being judged by the whole council together, made up of the Sanhedrin, made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. And in verse 6 we read, When Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, concerning the... The, uh, the hope and the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. So he just makes this statement that the whole issue here is that I'm teaching resurrection. And, of course, that just got the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees in a huge battle with each other. The Pharisees believed in a physical bodily resurrection, and the Sadducees did not. The Sadducees were sort of the religious liberals, the religious rationalists of the day. They didn't believe that in angels. They didn't believe in the involvement of God in the everyday affairs of man. So they had sort of an anti-supernatural presupposition, and they didn't believe in resurrection. Some have said that's why they were called sad, you see. Then you had the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were the religious conservatives, and they believed in the physical bodily resurrection of Christ. And so they get in a huge argument, and they're, they're so busy arguing over the theology that finally the uh, commander pulls Paul out and takes him away to, to the barracks to protect him. And so he avoids the trial uh, before the Sanhedrin. So you have a couple of different elements going on. You have uh, Greeks who are rejecting the truth of, of uh, resurrection because of their philosophical presuppositions. Then you had some Jews who were rejecting uh, resurrection because of their uh, religious presuppositions. And then there were others among the Jews who had a distorted view of resurrection. There were some Jews at the time, some rabbis at the time, that misunderstood and misapplied such passages as Job 19.26. There we read, Yet from flesh, from my flesh, I shall see God. Job is talking about the resurrection. And so this passage was taken to mean that, that uh, the resurrection bodies that we would receive in the future would be identical in every way to our present earthly bodies. In other words, God was going to just bring out from the grave the, the bodies we have right now with no basic change. And this was considered to be uh, indesirable and uh, not very pleasant. Why would we want to come back and have the same old corruptible physical, uh, mortal bodies that we have uh, right now. So there was a question about that because they misunderstood the nature of resurrection. And this is what Paul addresses in the second part of this chapter of 1 Corinthians 15. So turn back with me now to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verse 35 addresses this, this second issue. Now in the first part... Paul has argued strongly for the physical bodily resurrection. 
It's indispensable to Christianity, he has argued, that everything depends on physical bodily resurrection. If you don't have physical bodily resurrection, then you don't have Christianity. If there's no such thing as physical bodily resurrection, then Christ did not, uh, was not raised from the dead. He was not resurrected. And if he was not resurrected, then Christ's spiritual substitutionary work on the cross as the basis for salvation, would be nullified. His redemption for the payment of sin would be nullified. If there was no resurrection, there would be no future hope after death. We would just be restricted to this life. Furthermore, this would challenge the very notion of Christian integrity because this is what the apostles testified to, that this is what happened, that they saw the empty tomb. And so if you reject, if resurrection is not true, then it destroys the integrity of the apostolic witness and the foundation of Christian integrity. Furthermore, the integrity of God is brought into question because this is the Word of God that attests to the resurrection of Christ, and if it didn't happen, then the prophecies would be nullified and God's integrity would be uh, cast in doubt. So he lays that foundation in those first 34 verses. And now in the second part of the chapter, in verses 35 down through 58, Paul is going to deal with the second issue, and that has to do with the mechanics of resurrection. And he raises this in verse 35 by using a a debater's technique, and he says, well now, but someone will say... How are the dead raised, and with what kind of body do they come? Now, as we look at the text, we see that there are two questions. How are the dead raised, and with what kind of body do they come? The, these two questions really focus the rest of the chapter. He's going to explain how the dead are raised and the kind of body that we get in resurrection. Now, this is a question that, that many people ask. People are perplexed and bothered about uh, what kind of body we get in the resurrection. Am I going to be old? Am I going to be young? If I've got a problem, if I'm a 90-pound weakling, am I going to get a body where I can be strong? If I've got a problem with weight, am I going to have a thin body? Am I going to still be a blonde? I want to be a redhead. You know, whatever it may be, people are concerned about what kind of body they're going to have in the resurrection and what kind of body we get before the resurrection. So people always have these kinds of questions, and the Greeks did too, but they're coming from a framework where they're thinking that you just get the same old corruptible body that we have now, and after all, why would I want to come back if I die when I'm 80? Why would I want to have that body raised from the grave and come back as an 80-year-old, overweight, still struggling with high blood pressure and high cholesterol and heart problems and everything else? What, what good is that? So Paul is going to address this issue. As we get into it, we have to deal with a few little exegetical uh, observations. First of all, the first word but is a strong contrastive conjunction in the Greek which indicates that he's changing the subject. He is moving from the reality of resurrection to the mechanics of, of resurrection. 
He says, someone might say, and here he uses a subjunctive mood to suggest that someone may come up with this objection. And it is simply a debater's technique for raising uh, the issue of what the opponent uh, might say to what he has taught. So they come up with these two questions. Now, the next decision we have to make is, are these two questions two separate questions or are they the same question where simply the second question further expands uh, our understanding of the first question? And that is how we should understand it. These are not two distinct questions, but it's how are the dead raised? In other words, in what sense is the dead, phys- the, the physically dead body uh, raised? What kind of body do they receive? So the second question is merely an expansion and development of the first question. Now, another thing we note here is when we look at these two questions, we have some important vocabulary, which also indicates the transition in the chapter. In the first question, we have, how are the dead raised? And the Greek word for dead is the word nekros. That's N-E-K-R-O-S. Necros. And necros is used 11 times so far in this chapter. From verses 1 down through 34, this is a focus. But of course, this isn't talking about simply the dead. It's talking about the dead body. What happens to the dead body? But the word for body, which is soma, has not yet appeared. This word now appears in verse 35 for the first time, and between verses 35 and 49, soma is going to be used ten times. Necros is used another three times in this last section, but only as a reference back to what has been said in the previous chapter. So there's a clear shift that takes place that's illustrated by the movement in vocabulary from necros to soma, and the key issue now is going to be what happens to this body. What kind of body are we going to have? What's that resurrection body going to look like? And, of course, there's a lot of ways we can speculate about the the resurrection body when we think about Christ's resurrection body and the kind of body he had, the things that he, were, he was able to do. He was able to materialize and dematerialize. He was able to, to move through walls. He apparently was able to travel just at the speed of thought. So if he wanted to be in Galilee, he was in Galilee. If he wanted to be down in Jerusalem, he was down in Jerusalem. He just, and in some way, he was able to, to mask his identity. Now, I don't know that we would be able to do that or even want to do that, but, for example, when he's on the road to Emmaus and he is explaining uh, the prophets in the Old Testament, the prophecies about the Messiah, the two disciples didn't recognize him. So in some way he masked his identity but and his appearance, and suddenly it was as if a veil lifted, and when they had arrived at their definition, um, at their destination, they saw who he was. So there's a lot of speculation as to just what kind of body uh, we will have. Well, these, uh, these two words, necros and soma, identify the shift in topic in this passage. Now we're going to talk about the body. 
What kind of body will we have? Do we just get this present body reanimated or do we get new bodies? Well, you can see where even someone who had studied the Scriptures might get the wrong idea about the kind of body we have. For example, in the Old Testament, the widow of Zarephath's son dies. And and when uh, Elijah brings him back to life, he's got the same body. But that doesn't quite fit the analogy here because what we're talking about here isn't somebody who just died and now within an hour or two hours of their physical death, they are resuscitated and brought back to life. But now we're talking about someone who has died and who has gone through whatever the process is to prepare them for the grave, and they are in the grave. And in some cases, the body has even begun to um, decompose. This is what happens in John chapter 11. So turn with me to John chapter 11. John chapter 11 records the death of Lazarus. I've always found this to be a rather fascinating episode because of the dynamics that are going on here. As we look at the beginning of the passage in verse 1, we're told that a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. Now, Lazarus and his two sisters were some of Jesus' closest Uh, associates and closest friends. I made that comment one time at a funeral years ago, and someone came up to me afterwards and said, I never thought of Jesus having friends. But these were his closest friends. He cared very deeply for them. And Lazarus is sick, and so the sisters sent a messenger to Jesus. He's with his disciples in the north in Galilee, about 80 miles uh, north of, of Bethany to tell him that the one whom you love is sick. So it shows that close relationship between Jesus and Lazarus. And when Jesus heard that, we're told in verse 4, he said, The sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And in verse 6, we're told, So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Now, if you had the ability to heal your best friend and he was fatally ill and you received word that he was dying, could you please come quickly and heal him? How would you respond? Oh, great, this is for the glory of God. Let me continue what I'm doing for the next couple of days and then I'll come and see what I can do, right? So Jesus just stays where he is and he knows when Lazarus will die and he knows that the significance of this is that he is going to bring Lazarus forth from the grave. So he stays two more days where he is, and then he goes down to Judea. And when they arrive, it turns out that Lazarus has been in the grave for four days, verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. And as he approaches the house, where there's now a large gathering of family and friends and and some of the uh, ruling elite of Jerusalem, so apparently Mary and Martha and Lazarus were among the uh, some level of aristocracy or the ruling elite to have the Jews out there. Now, Paul, I mean, John uses this term, the Jews, in a technical way. Remember, John's a Jew, Jesus is a Jew, Peter's a Jew, they're all Jews. But he talks about, when he uses this phrase, the Jews, he's really talking about the religious elite, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. These are the ones who are also present. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning uh, their brother. 
Verse 20, Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd just been here, my brother would not have died. So your question doesn't exhibit a lot of faith, but the faith is there. And Jesus said to her in verse 23, Your brother will rise again. Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So she has a firm belief in a future resurrection. And this is where Jesus said, I am, the re- I am the resurrection, the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, yet shall he live, verse 25. Now, if you notice, those of you who watched the Reagan funeral service the other day, this was the most clear statement of the gospel in the whole, in the whole affair. There were a lot of things that were said. There were a lot of good things that were said, a lot of wonderful things that were said. And it was very clear from things said by his son Michael and by some of the others that President Reagan was a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I have no doubt from many things that I've read that he was a believer and that last week he was absent from the body and face-to-face with his Lord. And he understood a, a salvation that was by faith through grace or by grace through faith. But it's so odd that in funerals today, people just get right up to the gospel, but they never tell you the gospel. It happened again and again, and I I have had people who have come up to me after I have done a, a funeral message and have commented on the fact that it has been a long time since they've heard a clear presentation of the gospel and a funeral message. We talk our way around the gospel. We don't come right to it. But at least there were some passages read at the funeral that clearly stated the gospel. And this was one of them. Jesus' statement that he is the resurrection and the life. And, of course, we know the story. We're familiar with the story that he goes to the tomb. And as he goes to the tomb, he asks for them to take away the stone and Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he's been dead four days. See, that's the clue. His body is corrupting in the grave. They have no concept of what's going to happen. And see, the power of God is such that he is going to call forth Lazarus from the grave, and he's going to be completely resuscitated, and there's a reversal of that corruption. We see a similar kind of episode that, that people may, may be con, uh, concerned with in Matthew 27, verses 52 to 53. This happened at the crucifixion. The graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of their graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now there's a couple of verses that very few people talk about in relation to the crucifixion at the time of the crucifixion and the resurrection. See, it's clear from the timing of verse 52 that the graves were opened at the time of the crucifixion when the veil in the temple split from uh, top to bottom. It was clear at, at that same time the graves were opened. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. But also at the resurrection, verse 53 And coming out of their graves after, in the Greek preposition meta, clearly means after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now that must have been just a bizarre thing. All of a sudden your great-grandmother shows up 
and you buried her 25 years ago. Somebody's mother-in-law showed up and they thought they were (laughs) well rid of her. That reminds me of a joke that Arnold Fruchtenbaum frequently tells about a rabbi in New York who wanted a free trip to to uh, Jerusalem, he'd always wanted to go to the Holy Land, so he uh, went went to got this free trip to go to Jerusalem, and and his wife wanted to go, but she said we have to take my mother, and he didn't want to take his mother-in-law, but finally they they nagged him enough to where he took the whole family, took his wife and his mother-in-law, and while they were in Israel, his mother-in-law died, and he said, how much is it going to cost to bury her? Well, she's she's a, she's a Jew, it's it's free. Well, how much is it going to take for me to bury her and take her back to? take her back to America. And they said, well, that, that'll cost $30,000. $30,000. Yes, but you can bury her here for free. She says, no, I want to take her back to America. Why are you going to spend $30,000 to take her back to America? I said, well, I don't want to bury her here because I understand that sometime past they buried somebody here and he rose from the dead. And I don't want to take that chance. <laughs> Well, this incident in Matthew, quite, uh, quite an unusual, bizarre incident. But it must have been an incredible witness and testimony in Jerusalem to the reality of resurrection. But all of these people simply received back a renewed physical body that they had once had. They lived. They, they were still corruptible. Their body was still corruptible. It was still mortal. And it would still... It would still and did eventually die. Lazarus' body is in a grave somewhere in Israel. The bodies of those that came out of the grave on the uh, day of the crucifixion are buried somewhere in Israel. The bodies of the widow, the son of the widow of Zarephath is somewhere in Israel. They all died. They didn't receive resurrection bodies. So what Paul is describing here is the fact that, no, we are going to receive a new body it, it, there is a continuity with the old body. There are similarities with the old body. It comes forth from the old body, but it is a new body. So he is going to develop this in the next section. He says, how, he raises the two questions in verse 35. How are the dead raised, raised up, and with what body do they come? And Paul's response is, oh, foolish ones, you fool. Literally, it's just fool. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And he uses the word afron, and the word is a compound word. It has the alpha privative at the beginning. This is the, it's equivalent in Greek to our English un. It negates the word. And fron is used here, and mean, it comes from the root meaning to think. The alpha there means to not think. So he's saying you're, un, you're, you're unthinking, you're stupid, you're, you're ignorant. You are, you know, you're, you're so stupid you're believing things that only intellectuals would believe. You're a fool. Don't you understand basic principles? Let's just go and he gives an illustration from agriculture. Just a basic principle. Any of you who like to plant things, whether it's flowers or vegetables or grow anything from seed are familiar with this with this principle. I've never had any luck growing any vegetables from seed. I don't know what, what it is, but I just, or even flowers. I remember several years ago, we went down to Monticello 
And they have beautiful gardens there with beautiful flowers. And you can pick up various different kinds of seeds. Some of these are seeds that are not common today, but they go back to the kinds of flowers and that they had in, at the time of, uh, of Jefferson. So we picked up some of those, came back, and I very carefully got potting soil and lights and you know, did the whole thing to just try to germinate these seeds and have grow some of these flowers. And I guess I just have a brown thumb because those seeds remain dead. But Paul emphasizes the principle here that what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. You see, a seed has to die before it can bring forth life. So we see a, a, an analogy that God has built into creation with seeds. Seeds have to die before they can bring forth life. Now, I just heard somebody having a thought. Somebody said, well, wait a minute. I didn't think anything died until after after." Adam sinned. So how do you have? How can you have a situation in in uh, Genesis one where it talks about God creating the trees and the shrubs, everything with their seed in them? Well, we have to understand what that there are different kinds of death because there are different kinds of life, and plants, shrubs, trees, vegetation doesn't have life in the biblical sense. It doesn't have nefesh. That's the key word in the Old Testament for what life is. It's nefesh. There is biological life, but it's not, it's not life in the same sense of, of the kind of life that animals and human beings have. It's a different kind of life. So the death that you have of plants and that's part of the seed dying and bringing forth new life, is not a death that is a death that's related to, to, uh, to sin. It's not because we're not dealing with that kind of life. We're t- talking about simply uh, vegetative life. So the principle that you have is that the seed dies and then it brings forth new life. So verse 37, we read, "...in that which you sow..." You do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. So if you look at the seed, it doesn't look anything like what it is going to produce. It's completely different. You look at that seed, some, some seeds are quite tiny. You just have to almost use a, a magnifying glass to be able to look at them. Other seeds are quite large, like a sunflower seed. But that sunflower seed doesn't look anything like a sunflower. Nevertheless, if you sow that, if you plant that in the ground and, and water it and has the right soil conditions and, and temperature, then what will come forth from that dead seed is a new plant, a new flower that will grow five or six feet tall and produce beautiful sunflower. But it doesn't look anything like the seed. So Paul says, what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or something else. So here he is applying an analogy that they would all understand because this was a time when when the culture was based on agriculture and everyone was familiar with these things. We live in uh, societies today where there are many people who don't understand anything about agriculture. They've never planted anything or, or grown anything. And so it's difficult for them to relate to this basic principle. 
But then Paul goes on and says, but God gives it, that is this new plant, a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. In other words, there is a correlation between the seed and the body it produces. There's a presupposition here of Genesis chapter 1. Hold your place here and let's go back to Genesis. What Paul is doing is he's making an analogy that each seed has its own body. You plant a sunflower seed, you're not going to get a geranium. You know, if you plant a hibiscus seed, you're not going to get a sunflower. You just plant a seed, it's going to produce after its kind. So there's a presupposition here of the truths in Genesis chapter 1. So let's go back and look at how God creates vegetation in Genesis 1. And the reason I'm doing this is I want you to realize that if Genesis 1 isn't literally true, then Paul's argument for resurrection falls apart. And the point here is that if you believe in a theistic form of evolution that God just sort of created basic matter and spun it out there in the universe through the Big Bang and that he just everything just develops down through time through, through using the standard evolutionary process before and everything just generates out of that, then you don't have a basis for resurrection. Because the presupposition of Paul's whole argument here on resurrection is the stability of the kinds in Genesis chapter 1. So let's look at verse, verse 10. God called the dry land earth, the gathering together the waters he called seas. God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass the herb that yields seed and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth, and it was so. See, we've already talked about the seed idea just a minute ago. So God creates everything to reproduce according to its kind. So there is a stability of kind. There is a, and, and as I pointed out when we had our study of Genesis chapter 1, this is beyond the species level. I think species is far too narrow for the biblical kind. We're not exactly sure what the biblical kind was, somewhere between what we would call genus and family. Uh, it, 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 it's dependent, but there's a stable kind, and, and there's a lot of implications to that, but one is that that you know that when you plant a grass seed, you're going to get grass. When you plant wheat seed, you're going to plant you're going to get wheat. When you plant tomato seed, you're going to get a tomato, and it's always that way. And this is the stability that we have. Now you can keep your place in Genesis one. We'll go back and forth a couple of times. Back to First Corinthians fifteen. So Paul says in verse thirty-eight, but God gives it a body just as He wished, literally just as He willed. See, God has, is the one who is in control, and God is the one who is determining the kinds. The word here is the word theleo, which is the standard word for will. So God has determined what the kinds are. God has determined which seeds would produce what plants, and that is stable down through history. 
Now, that doesn't mean that you can't develop new hybrids. It doesn't mean you can't develop uh, new strains of, of different things. But a tomato, whether it's a cherry tomato or whether it's a big boy or whatever it is, it's still a tomato. It hasn't become an apple or a pear or a grape. It is still a tomato. So God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. And the analogy, the point of the analogy here is that our present corporal body must die before there is this transition to a new body. But it will be of the same kind as the present body. You're not going to come back and look like a Wookiee. You're not going to come back and look like some, you know, some other creature. You're going to come back and there will be a continuity to the present body. This is what we see in the resurrection body of Christ. When he was raised from the dead, when he came back, they recognized him. Now, we don't know there will be certain differences because a certain amount of our appearance is the, is the product of living in a fallen world. We get gray hair, we get overweight, all these other things, and yet we're going to have a body that's not going to be tainted by sin. So there's going to be uh, some perfection there that's not there now. I know that's going to make some of you very happy. But we're still going to be able to recognize each other. And then Paul develops this argument, this analogy actually, in verse 39, all flesh is not the same flesh. Now this is interesting, verses 39 through 41 give us a clear understanding of, of, the, uh, of what's going on back in Genesis uh, in the sense that there are different categories, different kinds. He says all flesh is not the same flesh. There's one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds and another of fish. There are specifically specific designated kinds. And these kinds do not shift. You don't move from one kind to another. There's not a part man, part beast. You don't have a missing link. You don't have a part bird, part beast. You don't have something that's a, a cross or a halfway between a, a fish and an amphibian or between an amphibian and a bird. Verse 40, he says, there are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. And here he's talking about heavenly bodies being the stars and earthly bodies being like the, like the uh, planets. But the glory of the heavenly is one. The glory, the beauty of the sun, for example, is self-generated. The glory of the earthly is another. It reflects like the moon. The moon doesn't produce light, but it reflects the light of the sun. So there are different kinds of bodies, different categories. And in verse 41, he explains there's one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for stars differs Stars differ from stars. Star differs from star in glory. So in this, he is arguing that there are different uh, categories, different descriptions. And the point of this whole analogy is that God is going to give us a resurrection body that is uh, comparable to what we have today, but it is going to be different in its glory. Now, something that's embedded in this whole, under, this whole illustration here, there's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, is that there are going to be different grades of glory for us in heaven. 
And that's part of rewards, a distinction in rewards. This is something that is that I've taught many times. All believers do not have the same thing when we get to heaven. We're not all going to get to heaven and enter into a socialistic state where we all have the same identical things. We're all going to have a resurrection body. We're going to have a certain degree of glory in that resurrection body. But there are going to be different levels of glory based on our rewards, based on what we have done uh, in this life in relationship to our spiritual growth and spiritual advance. There are different crowns. There are different rewards. There are some believers who will have many rewards, and there are other believers who will not have any rewards because they have not uh, pursued spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. So we come to verse 42 where Paul draws his conclusion. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. See, this is the answer to the question, how are the dead raised up? They're raised up in incorruption. What kind of body do they have? They now have an incorruptible body. It's not the same body. It's not going to have the same flaws. It's not going to have the same weaknesses. It's not going to be subject to disease or failure in any way. Verse 43, it is sown in dishonor, that is in death. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. So there will be a difference. There will be some marked differences between our future resurrection body and our present body. And then he concludes in verse 44, it is sown a natural body. And here the word is sukikos, meaning without a soul. So it's an unbeliever. You, it is sown as an unbeliever. That is, when you were born, you had body and soul, but you were lacking a spirit. It was a soulish body. It lacked a human spirit. But it is raised a spiritual body, a body that's in relationship to the fact that you have been regenerated. You've been born again, and you have received a human spirit. So Paul states there in conclusion, it's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body, there's a natural body, and there is a spiritual body. So there is a movement from what we have in this present mortal body to a new kind of body. Now the next section, verses 45 down through 49, is going to take this to another level and relate it back to the doctrine of the first Adam and the second Adam. So we'll come back and work that out next week with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word today. We thank you for the challenge of your word to recognize that there is a future life. And lest we forget the movement of this passage is to the conclusion in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, that your toil in the Lord may not be in vain. Father, we need to be reminded that there is a future, that there is a resurrection and a future judgment. And what we are, the decisions we make today will determine who we are in eternity. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Your salvation is not based on who you are, what you've done, what you haven't done, your religious affiliation, church membership, or any other factor. It's based on the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The issue is... Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we've studied today. We pray in Christ's name.
Amen.